Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 4. You will recall that all of chapters 1 through 6 are generally understood as a sort of prequel. I mentioned in the first episode in this series that historians have long recognized that the two primary sources for the story were the first-hand memoirs of both Ezra and Nehemiah. But Ezra as a character doesn't make an appearance in this book until Ezra chapter 7. So chapters 1 through 6 have been inserted, obviously, from other sources to provide a bit of necessary background. In chapter 1, we learned about the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C. that made the return and the rebuilding project a political possibility. In chapter 2, we learn about the main characters involved in the first great wave of return that took place in 537 B.C. In chapter 3, we learned about the rebuilding of the altar and the refounding, as it were, of the temple compound in September of 537 under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel. Now, here in chapter 4, we are being introduced to the theme of conflict and opposition. I mentioned in the last episode that in all probability, the temple compound had been functioning as a religious site nonstop during the entire period of the exile. The people there had adopted a hybrid approach to religion and worship. There were elements of of Yahweh worship mixed in with beliefs and practices drawn out of the Canaanite and Babylonian traditions. In chapter 3, we noticed that the returning exiles were afraid of these people, who were not likely to be pleased by the scope of reforms that they intended to pursue. Well, here in this chapter, we are hearing about how accurate those anticipations proved to be. The surrounding peoples were not pleased, and they engaged in a protracted and multifaceted campaign of resistance. Now, the chronology here is very difficult for modern readers to follow. I'll be honest with you, I've read through this book many times, and I have had to get my uh, encyclopedias, my history books out in order to mark these dates. You have to be very careful. There's a lot of work to do. It's very confusing. You're going to want to have a pen, probably, as you listen to this chapter. A pen and maybe write in the margins, maybe keep track on a separate piece of paper. Now, part of the problem here is that most of us just aren't very familiar with the order of Persian kings. So when events are dated by association with a particular monarch, we can't really tell whether big gaps exist in the story or not. And we can't tell whether we're moving forwards or backwards in the story or not. So we tend to get lost very easily. In addition, there are little hints and clues in any language as to what transitions are being affected, and those hints and clues don't always translate across linguistic and cultural barriers to the modern reader. So, for example, most of the confusion in this chapter comes down to the dischronological material in verses 6 to 23, a problem that would completely disappear had the author put that material inside a set of brackets, which is how we would do it today. But that isn't how they did it. But we could easily do that, at least in our minds, 
and our difficulties would be significantly alleviated. We'll get to that in just a minute. For now, all you need to know is that this entire chapter is narrating the long history of opposition experienced by the post-exilic community, such that the temple project was stalled and largely abandoned from the time of Cyrus, the time of the original returnees, all the way down to the period of Darius in 519 BC. And that the other aspects of the project were also subjected to constant interference and harassment, even down as far as the mid-5th century BC. Having detailed the most notable incidences of that harassment, he resumes the narrative of the temple project in verse 24. And if you find that a little bit confusing, you're in very good company, but I'll do my best to walk you through it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, we met these people in the last chapter. These folks are known to us now as the Samaritans. They were a mixed breed of people. They were the descendants of the northern Jewish poor of the land that interbred with the folks who had been transported from other parts of the Assyrian Empire. That story is told in 2 Kings 17, verse 24 and following. Now, these particular folks mention Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who actually reigned about a generation after the initial deportation and shuffling that is narrated in 2 Kings 17. So what that means is that the process took place over decades, over 30 or perhaps 40, maybe as many as 50 years. The Assyrians were taking poor people from northern Israel, and moving them to other places in their empire and shuffling back defeated people from other countries. So these people, the people now in our story living in the geographical territory of northern Israel were a political and religious hodgepodge. Their worship was a mixture of northern Israelite tradition and various regional versions of paganism. Now, remember, northern Jewish practice had not been very orthodox at the time of the Assyrian exile. That was the reason for the Assyrian exile. Their worship was substantially degraded already. They were worshiping Yahweh in an essentially idolatrous way, using the golden calves set up by Jeroboam at Dan and Bethel, not to mention all the local shrines and high places. Now, of course, there were true believers in the northern tribes. Elijah and Elisha ministered in the northern tribes. So, of course, there were true believers, but the system as a whole had become thoroughly corrupt. So, you take that, and then you mix in some, some absolute foreign paganism, and that's how you get Samaritans. And that's why Zerubbabel and Jeshua absolutely reject their offer of partnership. They had come to reform what was broken, so they absolutely did not want anything Samaritan in this new foundation. Verse 3 says, But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. 
But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, close quote. And so, because of that, a long history of resistance and interference now began, which the author begins to narrate for us. The Samaritans basically said, hey, listen, if you're not going to let us participate in this process, then we will resist it tooth and nail. That's what's happening. And and that's the story that he begins to, to narrate for us. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work on the temple, which was sort of project A, was stalled from about 537 BC through to 519 BC. That's 18 years. And that was just the start of it. The author goes on from here to tell us about a couple of other attempts to discourage and interfere with rebuilding and replanting this project. And so verses 6 to 24 provide a bit of a summary, which takes us out of the straightforward chronology of the book. That's the complicated part. But as I said, if you just want to take a a set of brackets and put it around all the material from verses 6 through to verse 23, then that'll help you keep this straight. You can read forward after the set of brackets in uninterrupted chronology. So look quickly down at verse 24. It says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. So that's the author coming back around to where he left off from the story. Everything inside verses 6 to 23 is just an inserted summary of Samaritan opposition over the years. So we'll read it now, but then we'll encounter it again and again as we carry on with the story. All right, verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, so let's just pause here for a moment. Ahasuerus, as he's called here, is also known as Xerxes I. He is the king who features prominently in the book of Esther. He is also the king who invaded Greece in 480 BC and who fought against King Leonidas and the Spartans at Thermopylae. So in terms of historical reference, we've jumped forward in the timeline nearly 40 years. So the author is saying, even after we pressed through the opposition to the temple project in the time of Darius, we faced another round of hostility from the Samaritans a couple of decades later in the time of Ahasuerus. Now, we don't know anything about this letter or how the matter was resolved. The author just mentions it and moves on. It is Exhibit A in a lengthy list of attempted obstructions. In verse 7, we jump forward another 35 years or so to the time of Artaxerxes. So verse 7 says, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. All right, now we should just pause here just to make sure that we notice that this letter is a different letter than the one that is provided for us in verses 11 and following. This letter is said to have been written by Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil. But the letter provided in verses 11 and following is said to have been written by Rehum and Shimshay. 
So it's easy to miss the fact that the author here is telling us about two different letters, both composed and delivered in the time of Artaxerxes. This letter here in verse 7 does not seem to have elicited much of a response, or at least no response that we're told about. Regardless, it was just another example of attempted harassment and interference. In verse 8, we begin to hear about a subsequent letter, and this one did provoke an official response. So verse 8, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river, Close quote. All right, let's just pause here for a minute. First of all, it might be interesting for you to know that this letter was preserved in the original Aramaic. Most of the Old Testament is, of course, written in Hebrew, but there are a few sections here and there that were preserved in Aramaic. Aramaic was to the Persian Empire what Latin was to the Roman Empire, if that helps you. It was a sort of lingua franca in that part of the world for about 400 years. Jesus spoke Aramaic. In the time of Jesus, Hebrew had actually become basically a liturgical language, a language that you spoke in synagogue as opposed to the language that you spoke at home or in the streets. Jesus would likely have spoken Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and probably even a smattering of Latin. In that part of the world at that time, people generally spoke a variety of languages with varying degrees of fluency. Aramaic was adopted by the Persians as the language of administration throughout the empire. So if you wanted to write a letter from one part of the empire to another and you wanted to be understood, you used Aramaic. And this letter is preserved in that language, which suggests that the author of Ezra, whether that be Ezra or some later scribe supplementing the memoirs of Ezra and Nehemiah, that person has obviously obtained a copy of the original letter and is including it here for our consideration. And of course, that makes us wonder, how did the author obtain a copy of an official government letter? Well, actually, as we keep reading, we discover that Artaxerxes, the king that's being addressed in this letter, 
was the king in the time of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was working as the king's cupbearer, basically as his chief household steward. When this letter arrived, Nehemiah may well have laid it out on the king's desk. So therefore, it's altogether likely that Nehemiah would have had access to it. So perhaps he made a copy and that copy was preserved along with his personal memoirs. Anyway, this rather fascinating detail disappears when you translate it all into English. When we read this in English, we can very easily miss the fact that the author is including here a copy of official government correspondence. The reply to this letter is also included, again preserved in the original Aramaic, in verses 17 to 22. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. Let me just pause there, which means, of course, remember that Aramaic probably wasn't his native language either. It was the language of administration so that everybody could communicate with everybody else. All right, jumping back into verse 19. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. All right, so remember that everything from verse 6 to verse 23 really ought to be inside a set of brackets. This material would likely be presented as an extended footnote in a modern English document. It jumps out of the strict chronology of the story to detail the history of Samaritan opposition to the rebuilding program. This letter, sent around 445 BC, actually takes us forward in the timeline to the days of Nehemiah. So the work that is being done here that these folks are so opposed to is actually work on the walls of the city. The letter mentions that in verse 12. So if you want to rearrange all of this so that it flows in, in sequence for you, you could snip this letter out and drop it down somewhere in the next book in your Bible, the book of Nehemiah. But it fits here as a further example of the hostility and opposition that these folks had to deal with, which is the theme being developed in chapter Four. The gist of this particular letter is that if the Jews rebuild the city walls, they will inevitably instigate rebellion and stop paying taxes to their Persian overlords. That was a very calculated suggestion. After the wars of Darius and Xerxes, the Persian Empire was in considerable financial distress. They definitely could not afford for any of their provinces to stop paying taxes. So this was calculated to get the king's attention, and it worked. He issues a temporary cease and desist order, which the local Samaritan leaders were only too eager to enforce. 
and thus the project came to a halt. And it was this halt, actually, and the subsequent deterioration of the project that was such a concern to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read this. These are the opening verses of that book. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Close quote. So, obviously the Jews had begun work on the walls. Then the Samaritans had written this letter, getting a cease and desist order. They had obviously enforced that beyond the letter of the law and had not just put a stop to the work, but had actually torn it down and set the gates on fire. And Nehemiah hears about that back in Susa, in the, in the citadel. And it is that sad report that causes him to pray and take a huge personal and political risk in going to the king on behalf of the exiles. But thanks be to God, as a result of that intervention, Nehemiah was able to secure official permission from the king to rebuild the walls of the city, which they had never had before. Their original commission related to the temple, but they discovered that you can't rebuild the temple if you don't control the city. So they started on the walls only to have that project shut down. But now here in the providence of God, there is a great and glorious reversal. We'll read all about that when we get to the book of Nehemiah. The point here in this advanced preview is just to remind the readers that this renewal project faced fierce and determined opposition, and was only able to continue by the grace and mercy of Almighty God, often as experienced through the hand of the imperial government. But that's a story for another day. Having made his point, the author jumps back now into his original timeline in order to complete the story of the first phase of the project, having to do with the rebuilding of the temple, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work on the temple compound began in 537 BC. But because of all this incessant interference and harassment, it was actually delayed for 18 years and was not resumed until the second year of Darius, at which point it was brought to completion in 516 BC. The author wants us to understand here that through many dangers, toils, and snares, this small band of returned exiles, this weak and fragile remnant, made slow but steady progress against all odds and every reasonable expectation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 